Hello, everyone. This is your host, John Hagedorn. There's a place in everybody's mind where you can go to take a break from the worries of everyday life and work. It's not always easy to find that place. Most of us don't have a name for it, but it's there. You might be driving coast to coast solo or staying up late at night hoping for sleep, and all you want to do is to find a place where you can tune in something interesting and tune out all the clutter that's going on in your mind. Getting into a good story is a good way to find that place. I'm a curator of all types of stories, many of which I narrate for my 1001 Stories Network shows. I'm also a connoisseur of vintage radio shows, mostly from the 50s, before television took hold and took imagination and great script writing out of the picture. I've created a place you can go to any time you need a great story, and it's called 1001 Stories from Roy's Diner, or simply Roy's Diner. It's just up ahead on the right. On the menu tonight at Roy's Diner, the very best of 50s vintage suspense, thriller, and sci-fi radio episodes. We're inviting you to stop in for a story or two. The coffee here is free. And now, our story. got something I really want you to hear. It'll, it'll just take a moment. Not that you'll believe it, of course, but I've just got to tell somebody, even if no one can do anything, people still ought to know. There, that ought to do it. Now. It's a song entitled Layers. Kevin Singer here, and glad that you could join us. You've been listening to the music of Ron DiUlio. You might be a little more familiar with Ron's solo work in the field of computer and electronic music. Here, Ron was joined by guitarist Buddy Whittington for a rare duo performance. And with that performance, we'll conclude our program for this evening. Now, we invite you to stay tuned for a new dramatic series, Sci-Fi Radio. Good evening. I'm James Edward Kerr, and I'm your host for tonight's show, the first in a series of adventures through the imaginary worlds we call sci-fi radio. Picture a strange and alien universe. Benny Goodman and the orchestra, fascinating with them. That's the same Benny Goodman and the orchestra that you had a chance to see out at the Avalon Ballroom last week in one of their all-too-infrequent appearances in our area. Well, uh, what do you think? Uh, what's the matter with me? You must think I'm out of my mind. It's just an old radio show you're thinking, right? But what you don't understand is that I recorded this on my own radio just last night. There was this new radio show I wanted to hear, but I, I had to go out. I went to a, a school reunion, wanted to see how many familiar faces were left. You understand. Anyway, I set my recorder up with a timer to tape the new show, and what I got is what I just played for you. Now, now, please be patient and hear me out, because I'm convinced that this is only one of a series of occurrences which must be recognized for what they are, or the world will soon be plunged into a nightmare.
Hello. My name is James Edward Kerr, and I'm the host for the new radio drama series, Sci-Fi Radio. The tape I just played for you was mailed to me by an obviously very disturbed gentleman who neglected to sign his name. He enclosed a letter with the tape that said, Oh, wait, I'll, I'll just read it. <clears throat> uh, Mr. Kerr, your interest in science fiction and other wild tales of the imagination leads me to hope that you will listen to this tape and the others I will send you. Please, listen and believe. You must. And then you must play them for all your listeners to hear before it's too late. Well, I, I won't say that I believed all I heard on these tapes, but I do think you deserve to hear them. Then you can judge his story for yourself. I'll have the next tape queued up in just a moment. I'm John Williams, president of Astral Projections Records. I'd like you to hear the title cut from our latest CD. It's called Space-Time Peace. Space-Time Peace is the latest creation of the Sidemen who combine electronic wizardry and subtle acoustics into a unique musical experience that we're sure you'll enjoy. That's space-time piece by the Sidemen on Astral Projections Records. Now available at finer record stores everywhere. It's ready now. Here's tape number two. What do you do when the apparently impossible occurs? Well, try telling your friends that you heard a radio show that hasn't aired for years and see what reaction you get. It doesn't do any good to say that you've got it on tape. Everybody knows that old shows exist somewhere on tape. They think you're trying to put one over on them. More than once I was asked if I'd listened to Jack Benny lately. There were joking references to my crystal set radio. But then, at a lodge meeting the following Thursday, one man listened to my story with utter seriousness. When I finished, he told me that he had a strange little story of his own. As he related it, I was puzzled by what seemed to be a, a connecting link, a common denominator between his story and the odd behavior of my radio. I took the trouble the following day to make a two-hour drive out to his home in the country to verify that story firsthand. I took my tape recorder with me, of course, and here's what he told me. Lou, will you state your name, occupation, and address just for the record? Uh, sure. Louis Trachner, coal and wood dealer, RFD1, Danbury, Connecticut. Thanks, Lou. Uh, oh, oh, yes, your age, too, please. Uh, 54. Should I go ahead now? Yeah, yeah. Well, as I told you last night, it was, uh, well, it was in July last year when the first thing happened. I don't recall the exact day that it was, but it was about 6 o'clock in the morning because I had walked out on the front porch to get the paper. <laughs> you never know where the paper's going to be, you know. So I just turned around. <laughs> I couldn't believe my eyes. I mean, running right across the front of the house, uh, up near the eaves, there, there was, oh, come over here, I'll, I'll show you. Right about there, there was a streak of gray paint, and it was still damp. Now, it was about the width of a four-inch brush, and it looked like hell on this house. I mean, it's white. I figured some kids had done it that night for a joke or something, but, you know, if they did, they had to get a ladder up there to those eaves, and you wouldn't figure they'd go to that much trouble. It wasn't smeared, either. It's a real careful job. Nice, even stripe straight across the front of the house. Anyway, I got a ladder, and I got it cleaned off with turpentine, but as I was telling you yesterday, that wasn't the end of it. I mean, the next thing that happened, about three months later, when I decided the whole house could use a new coat of paint, you know, that white hadn't held up so good this time, so I just decided to try to paint it gray. I got the front finished last, and at about 5 o'clock one Saturday afternoon, 
and the next morning I come out, and would you believe it, I saw a streak of white paint across the front of the house. Well, first thing, I figured it's the damn kids again, because it was in the same place as before. But when I looked close, I, I saw it wasn't new paint. It was the old white paint I'd painted over. Somebody had done a nice, careful job of cleaning off the new paint in a long stripe about four inches wide right across the front of the house. Now, who in the hell would go to that much trouble? I just can't figure it out. Now, Mr. Kerr and, and whoever else may be listening to this recording, do you see the link between Mr. Trachner's story and mine? Suppose for a moment that something had happened on each occasion to briefly disturb the orderly progress of time. Now, that seemed to have happened in my case. I heard a radio broadcast that had actually been made years before. Now, suppose then that no one had touched Mr. Trachner's house but himself, that he had painted his house in October, but that through some fantastic mix-up in time, a portion of that paint appeared on his house the previous summer. Since he had cleaned the stripe off at that time, a, a broad stripe of new gray paint was missing after he painted his house in the fall. Absurd, you say? Well, I agree. In fact, I didn't really believe it myself. It was merely an intriguing speculation. And I told these little stories to friends simply as uh, curious anecdotes. But then... Occasionally, I began to hear other odd stories to add to my collection. For example, there was a man on Long Island who received a telephone call from his sister in New York one Friday evening. Later, she insisted that she didn't make that call until the following Monday. Once at a 45th Street branch of the Chase National Bank, I was shown a check deposited the day before it was written. A letter was delivered on East 68th Street in New York City just 17 minutes after it was dropped into a mailbox on the main street of Green River, Wyoming. And there are many more, too. I was in a, a great demand to tell all these stories at parties, and I told myself that collecting and verifying these stories was just a hobby. But the day I heard Julia Eisenberg's story, well, I knew it, it wasn't any longer just that. I first learned of her story from a friend who lived in her Greenwich Village neighborhood. I arranged to meet with her right away for an interview. This is case 17. I'm speaking with Julia Eisenberg. Would you mind stating your occupation, Miss Eisenberg? I'm an office worker in Manhattan. Thank you. Now, I believe you said something strange had happened concerning a dog. Yes, it, it's true. Would you mind giving me the details? Mm -hmm. I'd like to record them from afar. All right. It was uh, more than two years ago, um, October, I think. I, I went out one night to get some toothpaste from the drugstore. We, we have a quiet little neighborhood here, and it's just down at the corner, so I, I was walking. And on my way back, not far from the apartment, a large black and white dog ran up, and it was very excited but friendly, and I made the mistake of petting him. And from that moment, he, he simply wouldn't leave. And when I went into the lobby of my building, I actually had to push him away to get the door open. I felt sorry for him, poor hound, and a, and a little guilty because he was still sitting at the door an hour later when I looked out my front window. Well, he hung around the neighborhood for three days, greeting me with wild affection every time I went out. And when I'd get on the bus in the morning to go to work, he'd sit on the curb looking after me in this most mournful way, poor thing. I, I wanted to take him in, but I knew he'd never go home then, and I was afraid whoever owned him would be sorry to lose him. Did you try to find his owner? Yes, but I didn't have any luck. He had a collar, but his tags were missing, and I asked around the neighborhood, but nobody had seen him before, and finally he just disappeared. Disappeared? I figured he'd find his way home, at least I hope so. I always wanted a dog for myself, but my apartment's really too small for one, you, you understand. Of course. And you'll understand why I was surprised when a friend later gave me a three-week-old puppy. 
When was that? Much later, about two years. What did you do with it? Well, I knew I shouldn't try to keep it, but I was such a darling, I just couldn't resist. And then, of course, before I knew it, he'd grown so big, he ate more than I did. I guess you couldn't keep him after that. Oh, yes, he was wonderful company, you know. And But one night when I... I took him for a walk and I... Take, uh, take your time. Well, I didn't use the leash. He, he never strayed far. And I know he was just sniffing around in the dark a few doors down. But when I called him, he, he didn't come back. He never did. I, I never saw him again. No, I'm sorry. Our street is a solid wall of brownstone buildings on both sides with locked doors and no alleys. He, he couldn't have disappeared like that. He, he just couldn't, but he, he did. I hunted for him for weeks afterwards, put ads in the paper and all, and there wasn't a single trace. And then one night I was getting ready for bed and I, I happened to glance out the front window down at the street and suddenly I remembered something I'd forgotten all about. I remembered the dog I chased away over two years before. Now, you, you may think I'm crazy, but that was the same dog. I know it was. I, I chased my own dog away two years before it was born. <laughs> I don't think you're crazy, Miss Eisenberg. It was at that moment, Mr. Kerr, in Miss Eisenberg's living room that I realized fully that the consequences of these odd little incidents could be something more than merely intriguing, that they might, quite possibly, be tragic. It was in that moment that I, I began to be afraid. I've spent the last 11 months tracking down these, these strange occurrences, and I'm astonished and, and frightened at how many there are. I'm astonished and frightened at how much more frequently they're happening now. And, well, I hardly know how to express this, at the increasing power to tear human lives tragically apart. On my next tape here. I, I have an example of the increasing strength of, of, of whatever it is that's, that's happening in the world. Tape 3, case 34. I'm in the apartment of Mr. Paul B. Kirch in the Bronx. Mr. Kirch is an accountant. He and his wife are in their late 20s and they have a boy about six. Mr. Kirch? Yes. You said your story has something to do with some pictures. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I'll get them for you. Here they are. Now, I want you to know I'm a pretty good amateur photographer. I even got a dark room set up in the kitchen. Tell the man what happened, will you? I am, all right? I am. It was two weeks ago, and we were all down in Central Park. It was a nice day, so I took a whole roll of film. Pictures of all of us. The kids' grandmothers have been pestering us for pictures, you know. Anyway, I set the timer on the camera to snap the pictures automatically, so I had time to get around into each picture myself. All right, these are the first ones I took. Now, as you can see, I'm wearing a light business suit. Now, my boy there is wearing a dark suit with knee-length pants, and my wife has on a dark dress with a cloth coat. I see. Now, I'm going to show you the last picture, which I took exactly like the others just minutes later. We agreed on the pose, I set the camera, walked around in front, and joined my family. Monday night, I developed the whole row, and look what came out on the last negative. Hmm, well, this is odd. You're wearing an entirely different suit. Right. Your son has a different outfit on, too, and he looks like he's taller. And what else? Well, well who... Who is this woman? I don't know. I've never seen her in my life. So you, sir. It's true. I don't know who she is. Well, I do. I think that photograph shows how things will be a couple of years from now. Oh. I think that woman is going to be your new wife after I'm gone, either divorced or dead. Look, that's a crazy idea. Then you tell me what that picture does mean. Well, I, I think I'd better be going. Uh, thank you for sharing your story. Yeah, get out of my house, will you? I didn't ask you here anyway. I don't know what you and your listeners think about this story, Mr. Kerr, but I have no doubt that Mrs. Kirch was right about that photograph. Now, if you'll indulge me just a few more moments, I've saved what I think is the most ominous episode for last. I was lucky, I guess you'd call it that, 
in being in the right place at the right time. I was at a mid-city precinct of the New York Police Department. I check in there regularly in hopes of picking up new cases for my collection. But on this particular night, uh, well, just listen to my final tape. I'm talking to Captain Rem of the New York Police Department. Yeah. Captain Rem, if you'd just like to... Uh, uh, wait, just a minute, just a minute. Hello, Rem here. What's that? You got what? I'll be right there. I got to see this for myself. What is it, Captain? You're always looking for strange stories, Jack. Well, I got a good one for you. Come on. Well, where are we going? To the moor. Going again? Yeah. Okay. Now, Charlie here is one of the interns in this place. Charlie, this is my friend Jack. Hello, Charlie. Hi, how you doing? Uh, Jack collects stories about strange happenings. Now, Charlie, tell us what you got here. Yeah, right. Well, I'll just, uh, I'll roll them out and show you. See, they brought this stiff in about an hour ago, Captain. Uh-huh. Report says a cab ran him down in Times Square. Hey, there's nothing strange about that. Right. Take a look at this. Huh. Young guy, maybe 30, beard, uh, mutton chop whiskers. What about it? Look at his clothes. Well, they ain't too fashionable, are they? Right. Cutaway coat, vest with lapels, huh. oversized bow tie, and a turned-up stiff collar. Now, he also wore a tall silk hat and button shoes. Well, that's a little weird, all right. But, hey, I've I seen all kinds out there on the streets. You know. Not with this in their pockets. What's that? Some change he had on him. Now, this nickel here? The uh, shiny new one. Yeah, yeah, right. You ever seen a nickel like this before? Well, let's see. It's got a shield on the front and a big five on the back. Uh, <laughs> can't say as I have. Check the date, Captain. 1876. This still must have been some kind of coin collector. <laughs> yeah, I'll say. And every other coin in his pocket is older than that. All his pennies were Indian heads. When did you ever see one of those? <laughs> Even had a silver three-cent piece on him. Well, how about uh, paper money? Do you have any bills on it? Over 70 bucks. All old-time bills, the big kind. Huh. Not a Federal Reserve note in the lot. And that's not all. Uh, what else have you got? This piece of paper. That looks like a bill of some kind. Lexington Avenue livery stable. For feeding and stabling one horse and washing a carriage. Total due, $3. No name on this bill. Do you have any ID on it? Yeah, right. He had some cards in his wallet. His name was, uh, Rudolph Fence. Some address on Fifth Avenue. Here's the card. Oh, thanks, Charlie. It's a strange one, all right. What do you make of it, Jack? Well, there's nothing much you can make of it. Apparently, someone, this uh, Mr. Fence, went to a lot of trouble to dress up in an antique style. Uh-huh. The coins and, and bills, I assume he could buy them at a, a coin dealer. Yeah. Then he got himself killed in a traffic accident. He got himself killed is right. 11.15 at night in Times Square. The theaters are letting out. Busiest time and place in the world. And this guy shows up in the middle of the street, gawking, looking around at cars and signs like he'd never seen him before. Well, the cop on duty noticed he was acting strange. Report says that when the lights changed and the traffic started up, he was on the island in the middle of the street. But instead of waiting, <laughs> damn fool panicked, trying to make it back to the sidewalk. Cab got him. He was dead when he hit. Okay, Charlie. You can put him back on ice now. Right. Thanks for the call. Jack, let's go back to my office. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Bill. That uh, wraps it up. I'll be talking to you. Okay, Jack. Here's the story. Missing persons had a file on this fence, fellow. It was an old one from 1876 seems that a guy of his name and description went out for a little stroll one night to smoke a cigar, and he didn't come back. He was never seen or heard from again. I hate this case. I hate it, and I wish I'd never heard it. But what do you think? I, you think this guy walked off into thin air in 1876 and showed up again more than 100 years later? I don't know what to think. But do you, do you have some other explanation? No. No, Captain, I don't. Sure as hell beats me. Well, that's it, Mr. Kerr. I could go on. I could give you and your 
Listeners, several hundred such cases, but some are just too horrible to be heard. All of these cases have happened in the New York City area alone, all within the last few years. I suspect that thousands more have occurred and are occurring all over the world. Yes, I could go on, but the point is this. What is happening and why? I believe I know. Haven't you noticed on the part of nearly everyone you know a growing rebellion against the present and an increasing longing for the past? I have. Never before in my life have I heard so many people wish that they lived back when life was simpler or when life was worth living or just in the good old days. People didn't talk that way when I was young. The present was a glorious time, but they talk that way now. I believe that this is the first time in history that people are desperate to escape the present. The newsstands are jammed with escape literature. Entire magazines, radio, and TV shows, and many of the movies are devoted to fantastic stories of escape to other times, past or future, to other worlds and planets, escape to, to anywhere. But here and now, yes, there's a, a craving in the world, like a, a thirst, a terrible mass pressure that you can almost feel, a pressure of millions of minds struggling against the barriers of time. I'm completely convinced that this terrible mass pressure of millions of minds is already slightly, but definitely, affecting time itself. In the moments when, when this happens, when the almost universal longing to escape is greatest, these incidents occur. Man is disturbing the clock of time. And I'm afraid it soon will break. And when it does, I, I'll leave it to your imagination, the last few hours of madness that'll be left to us with all the countless moments that now make up our lives suddenly ripped apart and chaotically tangled in time. Can anything be done to stop it? I don't know, but uh, I doubt it. Perhaps if people only knew what was happening, if they would only come to appreciate what they have. It might not be too late. That's why I've sent these tapes to you, Mr. Kerr. You, you must believe me. You must put them on the air. It, it might be our only chance. That was the last of the tapes from my anonymous correspondent. For myself, well, I really don't know what to make of them. I have tried to verify some of those strange incidents, but... So far, I've had no success. I also have no personal knowledge of any incidents like that. Perhaps one of you listening is aware of... Our cast starred David Kent as the narrator and featured Dale Castle in the role of Lewis, Gloria Hawking as Julia, Rick Spiegel as Paul, and Charlotte Taylor as the wife. Captain Rem was played by Gary Moody, and Charlie was Ken Page. The disc jockey was Kevin Singer. The short story, I'm Scared, by Jack Fitty, was adapted and directed for Sci-Fi Radio by John O. Williams. All music and sound effects were created by Ron DiUlio. The series' producers are Kevin Singer and Ron DiUlio. Support for this program has been provided by a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And now, this is James Edward Kerr inviting you to join me soon for another venture into the imaginary worlds of sci-fi radio. Benny Goodman and the orchestra had fascinating rhythm. That's the same Benny Goodman and the orchestra that you had a chance to see out at the Avalon Ballroom last week in one of their all-too-infrequent appearances in our area. Well, continuing this evening's little get-together with music from the unforgettable Glenn Miller.
Escape. Occupied France and the underground. The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations presents Escape, a new series of programs of which this, the second, is Operation Fleur de Lis, written and directed by William N. Robeson. Today, the 14th of July, the people of a free France celebrate the anniversary of their escape from the tyranny of the kings of Versailles. 158 years ago today, the people of Paris stormed the Bastille and let loose the French Revolution. The torch of liberty set afire that day never burned more fiercely than during the years when France was occupied by the Nazis. We escaped tonight to occupied France, from which three years ago there was no escape. You can call me Duke, but don't use my right name. I might want to go back to France someday. And there are a lot of people in the world that wouldn't understand that what I did was justified in a war. No, I don't have any regrets. Moral ones, that is. It isn't what I did to Renee that keeps me awake at nights. It's just the memory of her. There isn't much about her in my official report on Operation Fleur de Lis. But then it isn't customary to include descriptions of slim, sunburned legs and wide, deep brown eyes in a military document. And anyway, she was only an incident in the operation, even if she became somewhat more important to me. Operation Fleur de Lis began, like all the others, in the grubby, undistinguished house in London, which was the headquarters of the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, otherwise known in various parts of the world as screwballs, cutthroats, spies, cloak-and-dagger boys, and American underground agents. Gentlemen... Operation Fleur de Lis is planned to assist the advance of our forces once they've secured a beachhead in Normandy. Is that where we're going in, Major? That is one of the possibilities, Lieutenant. Yes, sir. You will jump over Grandmont in northern France, here on the map. You have to set up roadblocks on these three state highways. Here, here, and here. Uh, there is an underground contact near Grandmont, sir? Yes, Alcine Dutton. He's leader of the local Marquis. He's expecting him. Mm. In addition, you are to block these railroad lines entering and leaving Grandmont. These operations are to coincide with the advance of our ground forces. If they land in Normandy. If they land in Normandy. You will in plane tonight at 2100 hours and will drop over your objective at, well, I should think, approximately 2230. Any questions? Uh, no, I don't think so, sir. Well, yes, sir, I have a question. Yes, Lieutenant? How many of us are going on this mission? Just the two of you. Just the two of us. And all we had to do was organize an underground army disrupt the supply lines of a half a dozen Nazi divisions and give support to the entire Allied invasion. Just the two of us. But that's the way the OSS worked. But nobody ordered Hill and me into it. We'd volunteered. I don't know why. Maybe for moments like this one, when you get a B-24 assigned to you as a personal taxi, and there's lots of room to sprawl around after the Bombay. How do you feel? Fine. Scared? Of course I'm scared, aren't you? Me? No, this is a walk. You forget how tough it was when we were at paratroop school at Benning. Yeah, that was real rugged. If the wind wasn't right, you might land in the Chattahoochee and get all wet. And it was always the chance that you'd sprain your ankle coming down too hard. And the sun was so bright on some of those daylight jumps. Whereas we got none of those things to worry about here. A nice pitch black night over France, no sun to blind us, no Chattahoochee River to fall into. Hey, Lieutenant. Yes, Sergeant. Skipper wants to talk to you on the intercom. Thanks. Here, use my cans. Thank you. Duke here. Lieutenant, I'm over your objective. Any signal from the ground? Yes, the one arranged. Four dots, two dashes. Green. Very well. You and Lieutenant Hill move into the Bombay catwalk. I'll open Bombay doors in 30 seconds. Roger. Good luck. Thanks. Sergeant, stand by to dump those supplies as soon as we're clear. Yes, sir. Come on, Ed. This, as someone has said, is it. So soon? Just as I was settling down to a good book. Bombay doors are opening, sir. Okay, Sergeant. All right, Ed, let's check your harness. It's a frightful mess. I just can't seem to do a thing with it. I know, but this is the last party you'll have to wear it on. Okay. How am I? Well, don't look now, but your shoot's showing. Tuck it in. Let's get out on that catwalk. Wow, what a refreshing breeze. 
and all of France on our feet. You see the signal? That's what I'm looking for. There it is. Over to the left. You got it? Got it. Let's go. You kid. Sure you kid. It helps. But for those 10 seconds while you fall free, nothing helps. You hang on to the ripcord and you count off the seconds and you try not to count too fast. Your hand on that ripcord is the only certain thing in the world as you tumble head over teacups with a wind tearing sound from your ears. And there's only one thought, always the same thought, whether it's your first or your 50th jump. Will the chute open? It does. Yanking at your armpits, knocking the breath out of you, slowing you down, and you swing there like a rag doll trying to get your bearings. First, you make out the horizon. That's where the black becomes darker black, where the stars stop. And you wonder about Ed, but you can't risk calling out. And now that you're located where the stars aren't, you look for the signal light, and there it is, slightly to the left. So you tug at your shroud lines, spilling a little air to guide you toward it. And it's coming toward you awfully fast. And you hope this particular French patriot has picked out a field free of trees and church steeples. And then you try to remember all the things they taught you about hitting the ground and rolling with the wind and collapsing your chute. Because it's always like this. You always feel like you've never hit the silk before. And then you're down, and you roll just right, and you collapse your chute, and it's second nature to you after all. And then you hear footsteps running towards you. And you remember another important instruction. You whip out your automatic, and you hope your French is good enough to get you by. Qui va? Who is it? Alcine here. Fleur. Delis. Okay, Alcine, come on. Oh, last you've arrived, Lieutenant. So it seems. You have no idea how long we've wished for this moment. Hold it. That's my partner. Come on. Hey, Ed. Ed. Over here, Duke. You okay? My empennage is slightly damaged, otherwise okay. This is Alcine, our contact. Alcine, Lieutenant Hill. Hello, Alcine. Lieutenant, it is a great pleasure to make your acquaintance. Mm -hmm. And on behalf of my countrymen... Yeah, well, let's get these chutes buried and blow this place. Where's your transportation, Alcine? We haven't any. What? Where's the safe house? You might be able to stay at my aunt's. I, I don't think she'd talk. You don't think, aren't you sure? Oh, yes, I'm supremely confident that Where I... are the Germans? They're everywhere. And that is why I'm so glad you're here. Now we can fight again. With your help, we will kill many Bush. Wait a minute. How many are there in your maquis? Myself and two others. Just three of you? Oh, my aching back. But now that the Americans are here, we can do anything. Oh, why don't they get these things straight in London? How can we block roads with a three-man maquis? Three men and an ant who perhaps will not talk. Well, let's get cracking. Duke, you're not going through with this mad venture, are you? What would you suggest? Well, as for me, I'm all for taking the next plane back to London. Another piece of bread, Lieutenant. No, thank you, ma'am. This bone chicken is delicious. How do you call it? K-ration. Supreme. We've had nothing like it since the Bosch came. Yeah, well, you get used to it. And cigarettes, Tante Marie. Cigarettes made of real tobacco. Ah, you Americans have everything. Madame. Alcine, you are kind, you are hospitable, but the comforts of K-Ration will not block roads. We need men. We must form a maquis. But we have a maquis. I Look, my... Alcine, there are three of you and two of us. Sure, we've got guns and we've got ammunition and supply chutes somewhere out in that field where we landed. We've got arms for 50 men. But if we had those men, we still couldn't go to war against a German division. Now, you said yourself there's at least a division garrisoned in Grammont. What must we do? First, we must organize a maquis. We need men. Can you get them? I can go into the village and talk to my friends. You should have done that a long time ago. Falcine, that would be most unwise. Why? Didn't you know? Falcine is a patriot. He's a deserter from the Vichy army, so he's wanted by the Gestapo. Oh, great. And there's a Gestapo headquarters in Grandma, of course. Of course. Falcine is not one to run from danger. Well, quite the contrary. I can get René to help. Who's René? Alcine's sweetheart. A lovely girl from Paris. Poor thing, she had to come down to the country because her house was bombed out. Let's leave her out of this. But, Lieutenant, she would be most happy to help. Alcine, you've got a lot to learn about guerrilla warfare. You might as well study your first lesson right now. It's short and to the point. No dames. Well, the next day, we collected the supplies, which had been dropped with us, and we set up a camp deep in the woods... Hill and I were loaded with French money, so we were able to buy food from the friendly farmers. Maybe it was the food as much as patriotism that brought us recruits. Anyway, after a week, we had nearly 30 men. Our maquis wasn't big enough for the job we had to do, but it was growing in the right direction. And then one night as I was winding up a report to London... Huh? What do they say? What do they ever say? Message acknowledged. Carry on. Well, what about new batteries for the radio? What about extra ammunition for the Buck Rogers guns? When are they going to get another drop to us? 
Why don't you ask them? Yeah, I know. They do the best they can, I guess. After all, we're not the only Boy Scouts in this jamboree. Mm-hmm. Hey, Duke. Yeah? There goes Alcine again, off toward the road. What the... Hey, Alcine! Yes? Come here a minute. Yes, Lieutenant. Where are you going? I was just taking a stroll. You on night guard? Not tonight. You weren't on night guard last night, were you? No, Lieutenant. Or the night before? No, sir. But you weren't in camp all night, were you? No, sir. What's the matter? Don't you like the camp? Rather sleep at your aunt's? Is it too rugged out here for you? No, sir. Then where were you? In the village. You know the orders. No one is to go into the village. Yes, Lieutenant, but I only go in at night. That makes no difference. But it does. You see, Lieutenant, I'm so in love. Oh, great. The girl from Paris? Yes. You should see her, Lieutenant. She's the most beautiful, the most charming, the Don't most... Don't you know you're endangering the whole Marquis by disobeying my orders? Oh, no, sir. There's no danger with Rene. She hates the bush. Why, why, she wants to join us. You've told her about us? Oh, yes, sir. Are you out of your mind? How do you know she's all right? I just know that's all. She's the most wonderful person in the world. She, she's a real patriot. I told you, rule number one is no dames. Yes, but Rene is different. Yeah. Well, you better marry her before you bring her around here or you'll have to share her with the rest of these wolves. Lieutenant, do I understand you... Forget it, Elsie. It's just an American figure speech. Uh, may I tell Rene she can join us? Well... Not quite yet. Later, maybe. Yes, Lieutenant. Is that all? Yeah, that's all. If you got to take it, Alcine, take it easy. I do not understand. Just another American idiom, Alcine. Good night. Good night, sir. Hey, Duke. Hmm? You gonna let him get away with that? Well, what are we gonna do? Slap him into the guardhouse for 30 days. Only this isn't the American army. We haven't any guardhouse. Yeah, it stinks from a security standpoint. I know. We try to keep these boys from sneaking off home every now and then. We're not going to have any Maquis. Hmm. Ah, these French. An immoral race. I don't know about that. Remember Phoenix City, Alabama? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I see what you mean. <laughs> there wasn't anything we could do. If we'd ordered Alcine to stay in camp, he'd have sneaked off anyway. He had that dreamy, faraway look that's baffled parents, teachers, and first lieutenants since the beginning of time. I didn't worry too much about it because our marquee was growing, and Ed Hill and I were breaking our backs pushing those French kids through an airsatz basic in three weeks. Headquarters in London didn't tell us much, but we did know from the BBC that the boys had landed at Omaha Beach, and it wouldn't be long before they'd be needing our roadblocks. And then one morning... About D plus four, I think it was. I was out in the woods running a squad through concealment drill. Oh, no, no. Hit the dirt. Don't wait lieutenant. or you're dead. When you see the signal, hit lieutenant. the dirt right now. Pardon me, Lieutenant. Huh? Oh, I'll see. Where have you been all night as though I didn't know? Lieutenant, I've got to talk to you. Okay, I'll be through here in a half hour or so. I've got to talk to you now. Huh? All right, I'll see. Okay, boys, take five. Oh. Come along, I'll see. What's on your mind? Lieutenant, my family's been killed. Oh, no. Yes, by the Gestapo. They set fire to the house. My mother, my father, my two sisters. They ran out, the Gestapo shot them. You're sure of this? Yes, I heard it this morning from a neighbor who saw it happen. You poor kid. When can we attack, Lieutenant? When can we stop this endless training and fight the bush? Now I want only to kill and kill and kill until I paid them back from my father, my mother, my two sisters. Yeah, I know. You'll get your chance, Elsine, but not yet. We gotta wait. We're not ready yet. I'm ready. Before I wanted to fight the boss for my country. Now I want to kill him again and again for them. I know, but you gotta be patient. This should happen to me now. Only last night, Rene said she'd marry me, come to live here with me in the camp. I was so happy. And this morning I learned this news. When did you hear from your mother last? Not for a month since we began to work, but I've written her every week. You have? Who mailed the letters? Renee mailed them for me. She's so kind and thoughtful. She, she offered to mail letters home for the other boys, too. Oh, that was nice of her. Did they take advantage of her offer? A couple of them. Who? Paul and Jean. I told them about it and they wrote their families. And Renee mailed the letters, huh? Yeah, she's a wonderful person, Lieutenant. You're going to love her. Yeah, I think I am. She's all I've got in the world now. 
two and two make four in occupied France, just the same as anywhere else. And sometimes it's just as hard to prove. But one thing was sure. Now I wanted to meet Rene in the worst way. But I had to postpone the pleasure because early that afternoon, one of the outposts broke into camp Lieutenant. out of breath. Lieutenant. Yes, Paul? Uh, the Boche. They're coming down the road through the forest. How many? Uh, I did not stop to count them. Several truckloads, to be sure. Pass the word to Lieutenant Hill. Ask him to bring his detail into camp on the double. Uh, yes, Lieutenant. Alcine. Yes, sir? Take two men and go down by the road and see what they're up to. Yes, sir. Just reconnoiter. Don't fire at them. But this is my chance for revenge. Listen to me. Don't fire at them. That's a command. Yes, sir. They may not be after us at all. Now, get going. Immediately, Lieutenant. What's the order of the day, Duke? Lance Graham? Yeah, it looks like it. All your men here? President accounted for. All right, boys. Now gather around, will you, and get yes, this. There's a convoy of Germans coming down the forest road. Now, wait a minute. We're not going to fight them. You know what our job is. Roadblocks. We got tanks, artillery, and airplanes that'll be along soon to do the killing. Now, look. Our security's been pretty good. And those Krauts may be on a routine patrol. Chances are they don't even know we're here. They do now. Listen. Yeah. Well, that doesn't. All right. You men got your weapons? Good. Now, you know the procedure. Get lost. Before you leave the forest, bury your weapons, ammunition, and equipment. Rendezvous at the home of Alcine's aunt at 2,200 hours tonight. Good luck. Come on, Ed, let's scram. Well, he who doesn't fight and runs away lives to fight another day. Or something like that. Who tipped them off? I'm not sure, but I got a pretty good idea. Who's down there at the road? Alcine, he's fighting a private war, the poor jerk. The basic rule of three in guerrilla warfare is surprise, kill, vanish. However, when you're surprised, the only rule is vanish, and we did. There were about 50 Germans and a half a dozen dogs to track our scent. They spent the day thrashing through the woods, firing into the underbrush and finding nothing. It was a classic withdrawal, and Hill and I were proud of our little army, with the exception of Alcine, its self-appointed hero. When we arrived at his aunt's house that night for the rendezvous, a half a dozen of the boys were already there. Fleur. Ah, oh, Lieutenant, come in. Good evening, madame. Alcine is already here. I'm so proud of him. Ah, oh, Lieutenant, I was just telling Tante Marie and the boys it was magnificent. I got two of them. I killed two bush. Your orders were not to shoot. But, Lieutenant, what would you? What happened to the other boys who were with you? Jean was wounded and captured. Antoine became frightened and ran away. That blows the marquee. They'll get the full particulars from Jean. They haven't got him already. I'm sorry, Lieutenant, but... Quiet. Answer it, madame. Who is it? Fleur. Julie. Open it. Well, good evening, madame. Come in, boys. Run in any trouble, boys? Well, as you see, we are here. Yeah. But not for long. Lieutenant? Yes, Paul. and I wish to withdraw from the Marquis. Quit? Why? The risk is too great. You afraid? For myself, no. But after what happened to John? He was wounded and captured. We all take that risk. Yes, but last night, the Gestapo got John's family. Like they did our scenes. Oh, no. Stood them up in front of their house and shot them. No. Who knows who'll be next? My mother, Raoul's sister, Alcine's aunt. I wish to withdraw. So do I. All right, now, wait a minute. I don't blame you for being worried about your families. But whose families do you think the British and American armies up in Normandy are fighting to liberate? Their own? No, yours. Now, this thing isn't as bad as it looks. There's been a leak in our security. Somebody's been putting a finger on us. So we lay low until the leak's plugged. But the Germans are everywhere. Spies, perhaps, too, are everywhere. I think I know who's responsible for these murders. I'll make a deal with you. Give me a couple of days to work it out. We'll issue you boys some money, and all you've got to do is to get lost until Saturday night. And then meet me back here. If I haven't patched up our security by then, you can all quit the Marquis and become collaborators. Oh, it is not oh, that, Lieutenant. No one wishes to collaborate. But one must think of one's family. Okay. Ed. Yeah, Duke. Give the boys a thousand francs apiece. Right. Come and get it, boys. Come on. Alcine. Yes, my Lieutenant? I'm going to have a little time on my hands for the next couple of days. Do you think you could arrange to introduce me to your girlfriend? Oh, but of course, Lieutenant. Maybe, if she's okay, like you say, we can let her sign up, huh? I am desolated with happiness, Lieutenant. One thing, none of that Lieutenant business around her until I make sure she's all right. Very well. You think my French is good enough to pass as a native? But of course, Lieutenant. All right, then, pass me off as a friend of yours. Let's see, I'll need a name. Let's call me Jacques Dufresne. Jacques Dufresne. Good, I will make the arrangements immediately. I thought you'd like an excuse to get into town tonight. The next afternoon, Alcine brought the girl out to the woods near his aunt's house. I stood behind a tree to watch and make sure they weren't being followed. She was all right. Tall, 
long sunburned legs, her hair caught in a blue ribbon like a little girl's. I let them walk by, and then I stepped from behind my tree. Oh, there you are, Jacques. Hello, Elsie. René, this is my good friend Jacques Dufresne. He's from Paris, too. Jacques, this is René de Cibourg. Glad to meet you, mademoiselle. And I'm honored to meet you, monsieur. Where do you live in Paris? Near the Port du Lilas. But my home is no longer there. It was bombed out. Alas, so was mine. My family remain with friends, but I've come out into the country to fight with the resistance. Jacques has much influence with the commander of our Marquis. Oh, I hope you will be able to persuade him to let me join you, monsieur. I shall do what I can. It would be a privilege and an honor to work with a patriot like you. See, Jacques, I told you René was all right. You didn't tell me the half of it. Mademoiselle, you understand that we must be cautious. There are questions I must ask of a confidential nature. Why don't we meet again? Alone. Why not? Say, tonight? I have a little car. We, we might take a drive. Fine. But, René, you promised me I that... I can see you some other time, ma chère. Remember, France comes first. We just drove that night. She was wearing a white ribbon in her hair and a loose white dress and no stockings. We just drove around in her little Citroën with the top down and the wind blowing her hair like a girl in a magazine ad. Then we came back about midnight and parked with the bridge. I felt like I was back in high school in Illinois. Look at those stars, Jacques. Yeah. So many of them. So close you can almost reach out and touch them. Yeah. I had them all once, Jacques. I reached out and gathered them all in my arms once. Yeah? I want you to know all about me, Jacques. I want to. Don't think it's wrong of me. But I've been in love. There's nothing wrong in being in love. He was a soldier. Most everybody is these days. A German soldier. Oh. Don't you think that love is bigger than war? Or hate or anything? Yeah, I guess so. He's dead now. That's good. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, I didn't mean to hurt you. I'm not sorry he's dead. Shuck, I'm so confused. I want to understand things. I, I want to be intelligent about things. But everything gets so mixed up. Like now. Like now? Yes. Shuck, I've never been so happy as I am tonight. Not even with the German? Not even with him. Why does it have to end? Why do those blessed stars have to go out one by one to make way for another day of war? Why can't we stop time, you and I, and gather all the stars together just for us? I don't know, baby. It's never been done before. But we can try. Same place. Forever, if you say the word. Forever? Sure, why not? Who knows how long forever is in this crazy world? Why not have it together? Why not get married? Why not, my most beloved? See you tomorrow night. I'll only be half alive until then. Sherry, if you want to write to your family in Paris, give me the letter tomorrow night, and I'll mail it for you. No, no. 
tap, tap, tap. All right, drop that rock and grab a sock. Rise and shine, lover boy. I brought you a cup of chocolate. Figured you want breakfast in bed this morning. Oh, thanks. How'd you make out last night? Okay. Details. Let's have the details. Nothing much to report. We drove, and then we parked for a while and talked. Did she give anything away? No information. She's a funny kid. Her dialogue's as corny as a bobby socksy. She knows she's pretty, so she wants to be admired for her mind. But I'm sure she's our Matahari. How come? She offered to mail a letter to my family. Mm, that's consistent. I asked her to marry me. What? She didn't believe me, but she pretended like she did. Oh, I don't know why she's doing what she's doing. Thrills, maybe. French juvenile delinquent, huh? Maybe. Tonight's the night. The night you get married? No, the night we get her. The boys are meeting us here at midnight, you know. What's the plan? Well, I'll take another ride with her. And about midnight, we'll be back and parked by the bridge. Mm-hmm. You'll be there out of sight. Mm-hmm. I'll have some brandy along, and I'll slug her drink with a capture pill. When she's passed out, I'll give you the come on, and you join me. Here, baby, have another drink, huh? <laughs> I shouldn't, Jack. Brandy always makes me sleepy. Well, what of it? This is a celebration of our engagement. Oh, kiss me, Jack. Again and again. Sure. Jack, the stars are nearer. Nearer than they've ever been. Nearer than you think, baby. I love you, Jacques. I do love you. Kiss me again. Do it again. And again. Renee. Baby, are you asleep? You collaborationist pig, can you hear me? Okay, Ed. Right, she out? Like a red light in an air raid. Here's her purse. Yeah. Start through it while I untangle myself, will you? Now, take a look at this. What is it? A letter from Gestapo headquarters confirming receipt of three addresses. Let me see that. Well, that one's Alcine's family and that one's Jean's. And here's a Gestapo identification card. Flash your light over there. Look at her. What a dish. Look at that kisser. She's responsible for the death of six people whose only crime was being born French. She'd have wrecked our marquee, snafu'd our mission, and turned me over to the Gestapo with her lipstick still on my collar. That gorgeous hunk of double cross. Well, we got the proof. Let's get on with it. Okay. I guess you'd rather I... No, this is my job. Gee, she's gorgeous. Yeah. So long, honey. Thanks. She ain't so gorgeous now. Release that handbrake. Got it. Come on, shove. Not yet. Keep that steering wheel straight. The river's deepest right at the center of the bridge. Yeah. Now, hard right on the wheel. You know something, Ed? Huh? I think she finally did gather that arm full of stars. Sure, the operation was successful. When the time came, our roadblocks tied up three German divisions while Patton rolled on to the east. But I still lie awake at night thinking I should have married that dame. Yeah, the operation was successful, but the patient died. Operation Fleur de Lis was written, directed, and produced by William N. Robeson with Jack Webb as Duke, Elliot Lewis as Hill, Peggy Weber as Renee, and Harry Bartell as Alcine. Operation Fleur de Lis was based on an incident from the files of the OSS, recorded in Sub Rosa by Stuart Alsop and Thomas Braden. The special musical score was conceived and conducted by Cy Fuhr. Escape is presented by CBS and its affiliated stations each week at this time. Next week, we invite you to escape with F. Scott Fitzgerald in his unforgettable story, The Diamond as Big as the Ritz. And so, good night until next week, when again it will be time to escape. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Thanks for stopping by. 
Remember to tell a friend about Roy's Diner and send us a review next time you have a chance. We bring new episodes every Wednesday and Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. We're a proud part of the 1001 Stories Network, heard worldwide with listeners numbering in the millions. We hope you stop by again soon. Thanks for being with us.